0: So I have the opportunity to preach today and then again uh, at the end of April we'll be doing just a, a brief survey of the book of Habakkuk together and uh, I'm so grateful as soon as uh, uh, some of you heard that I was going to be teaching uh, you reached out immediately and were like what can, what can we do and so I'm grateful for the guys who are kind of helping the service along and for Catherine who jumped right into play and so just thankful for how the body works in that way. And uh, um, just wanted to say that before we begin. So, let's read together Uh, Habakkuk. uh, We'll actually read the first two chapters uh, together today, just so we can get a a view of these passages that we'll be studying. Habakkuk chapter 1 and 2, and this is God's holy and inerrant word. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They're dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than. whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than He. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with His net. He gathers them in His dragnet and He rejoices and is glad. Therefore, He sacrifices to His net and makes offerings to His dragnet. For by them, He lives in luxury and His food is rich. Is He then to keep on emptying His net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watchpost, and station myself on the tower and look out to see what He will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so He may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say... Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity, Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself, and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image... A teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Father, we are silent before You this morning and ask that from Your Word You would teach us. You are ruling and reigning on high. You have the plan for the end of the age. We do not know it yet, but we trust that You have it. And You have the plan for our lives today. And while we may not know it yet, we trust You that You will bring it to pass. Help us today to rest in you. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, the sermon title this morning is, uh, as you can see, Seeking Justice and Finding Rest. And I, I kind of stole that idea from a book titled by Nabil Qureshi, uh, Seeking Allah and Finding Jesus. Um, and this idea of just looking for something, not knowing what you're looking for, and then God revealing to you, uh, the path, the truth, or uh, as we say down south, a whole a whole nother lesson entirely. Um, this past week, uh, we got to go to Washington, D.C. Uh, we were there for five days. If you want to hear about it for hours on end, ask my kids. Um, and we took in a lot of the sites. Uh, we took a lot of pictures. Um, and I could spend hours, just like my kids, showing you all these pictures and talking about them. I'm sure you've been there and would likely know exactly all the things that I've, uh, I'm trying to tell you. This is uh, a picture of the ceiling of the Great Hall at the Library of Congress. Um, and, and I, I just want to say to you, this is Washington, D.C. in its grandeur, its, uh, in its intricate detail, in its artistic qualities. Um, I have pictures like this where you can take a picture of a ceiling and just stare at it for an hour. Uh, there's so many things to discover on the ceiling. Uh, but also, uh, this is Washington, D.C. Um, uh, several years ago, an astronaut named Scott Kelly spent an almost uh, almost an entire year in space. And a uh, quick side note, uh, it was cool because actually we were able to track the space station as it went over one day, and we actually got to see the space station through the kids' telescope. Um, but while he was in space, he took a, a lot of photography, uh, and he took this picture of Washington, D.C., Um, I know it's a little hard to see, but this is Washington, D.C. from space. Uh, Today, and uh, in a few weeks, we're going to take the space station view of Habakkuk. We aren't going to get into the details. Uh, We could spend weeks and weeks just talking about what God has in store for his people in the book of Habakkuk. So we just want to do a little bit of of pre-work and understand what's going on in Judah at this time. if you look at uh, the, the chronology here, I've tried to lay it out as best I can. Just briefly, um, we want to establish when Habakkuk was speaking. So, just briefly, in 640 BC, remember the numbers go backward. King Josiah begins to reign. You remember King Josiah, the boy king. Um, he uh, he uh, over the course of time began to reign, and he purged Israel. Um, Uh, of idols he uh, turned Israel back to God in 609 BC Josiah confronts uh, Pharaoh Necho and and dies in battle Pharaoh the Pharaoh is is heading towards Assyria and trying to attack them Josiah comes out and says you know what you're not getting past me and the Pharaoh says to him like don't get in my way I'm not here to fight you I'm here to fight the Assyrians and Josiah, and we don't know a lot of detail about it, but in his, uh, potentially his pride, he chose to stand in the way of, of the Pharaoh's armies. And so um, Josiah is killed in battle. And uh, Jehoahaz, his younger son, ascends to the throne. And, and most likely historians think that Jehoahaz was probably uh, very similarly minded to his father. Um, probably had the same view of, of Politics, the same view of, uh, of Egypt as uh, a conquering force. And so Pharaoh then uh, replaces him three months later with Jehoiakim, his older brother, who is more friendly to Egypt. Um, in 605 BC, Babylon then defeats Egypt in battle. So we've, we're starting to see the ascendancy of the Babylonian Empire. We're going to use the words Chaldeans and Babylonians kind of interchangeably for, for, uh, for our purposes this morning. So Babylon defeats Egypt in battle in the Battle of Carchemish. And Jehoiakim uh, does the political thing and goes, I see somebody stronger on the horizon, and I'm switching my allegiance. And so he switches in 609 B.C. his allegiance uh, to Babylon, and then in 60 uh, excuse me, that's in 605. Then in 601 BC, Jehoiakim goes. Ah, you know what? Never mind. We're going back to Egypt, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna trust in them as a, a kind of a uh, an ally, and uh, and so Babylon then a few years later attacks, and you begin to see some of these very um, uh, you know very um, memorable pictures of uh, the invasion and the siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian captivity as uh, Daniel is taken away into Babylon. And while we don't know for sure, uh, and and during this time, um, you know, he's setting up Zedekiah as king, while we don't know for sure, we think Habakkuk is writing somewhere between 612, so between the first two bullet points, and 609 uh, B.C., Habakkuk is uh, surrounded uh, by contemporaries, people that you would recognize. Jeremiah begins his ministry about 15 years before Habakkuk. And he's been calling the people of Judah to repentance uh, even before Josiah begins making his reforms. And we know that uh, the Scripture talks about Josiah as a, a godly king, but it seems that even those reforms are not enough to rid the nation of its lust for wickedness and for idolatry. Zephaniah also prophesies around the same time as Jeremiah, and so probably a contemporary of Habakkuk. And so Habakkuk, as he's writing this book, had heard the warnings of these men for many years. And, and leading up to this writing, he still saw that same bent toward evil in his country. And I think you know, maybe we can relate a little bit to that vision of looking around and seeing almost only evil. So who is Habakkuk? Probably lived in Jerusalem. We don't know a lot about him, uh, but we pieced together some clues from this book, from history. Uh, The last chapter of this book that we'll read and look into in a few weeks is a song. So he may have been a musician in the temple, uh, and that would have made him a Levite. And we know just from reading this book, if you look at it in Hebrew, I've been told, uh, that he had a great... Talent for writing. Um, We won't have time, like I said, to study the intricate details of the book, but it is a masterpiece of literary structure and argumentation. The first two chapters of Habakkuk, as you saw as we read, uh, are divided into four pretty apparent sections. First of all, Habakkuk expresses his distress uh, and introduces us to really the current situation of what's going on in Judah at the time. And then God informs Habakkuk that he has a solution and it's already on the way. And Habakkuk, uh, as you and I will will no doubt recognize, is pretty shocked by that solution uh, because it does not look at all like what he was hoping for. And then God promises full and complete judgment, not only on Judah for their idolatry, but also on the attackers, uh, the Babylonians. So first let's look at Habakkuk's distress. And uh, while we won't read it again, these are the first four verses of Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk begins to describe what's going on in Jerusalem. And he lists a few things, right? There's destruction and violence. There's strife and contention. It seems that the law, when it was attempted to be applied, was powerless. And so justice was not served. In fact, uh, it is missing entirely, it seems. Uh, justice for things that, that God cares about. Is, is not present at all, but he does say that the wicked surround the righteous, and so as justice does go forth, it's twisted. It looks completely different, completely opposed to the justice that God provides and I think you know, without diving too deeply into the parallels, uh, it, it's really what we look at on a daily basis, isn't it? Uh, all around us and and really for all of history. Uh, those who want to follow God have seen the effects of sin, of the fall uh, of Adam and Eve, and we've seen that in the world around us and even in our own hearts. So so how do we respond to this? And, and I do think it's good for us to learn from these first few uh, verses of Habakkuk how to respond when we look around us and see evil. Um, And it's very similar to some of the the ways that David questions God in the Psalms when he doesn't understand what's going on around him. So first of all, uh, we see that Habakkuk's response is natural and appropriate for a child of God. It is natural for us to feel sadness and disgust as evil swirls around us, and, and Habakkuk did. But it's important to come to the realization, as we see in these verses, that only God can make things right. Only God can truly heal or, or uh, fix the problem of evil. It's easy for us to look for ways to fix the culture. Uh, maybe we believe in the effectiveness of a of a political movement. Uh, maybe we find a way to protest the thing that we are against. And these are not sinful things, but unless we come to a, a full reliance on the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, we will tend to fall prey to the same type of evil and the same type of thinking that we hate in others. It is important for us to know that only God has the answer to evil. Only God has the way to fix our current situation. And Habakkuk will learn that that God uses His judgment of evil to draw His children closer. Uh, We'll see this uh, in a few weeks more in in chapter 3. But God can use that evil that's around us to point out flaws in our own heart. He can use the evil around us to remind us that we also are sinners and we're no different, uh, at least in our original state, from the violent and from the contentious and from the perverters of justice. Right, the, next, the next verses go on to talk about how we are changed through the power of God. So, as we look at the culture, and, and like Habakkuk, maybe we're tempted to see them as the sinful other. We come back to these verses and we remember that it's only by the grace of God that we are where we are. And we begin to feel compassion for those who are the enemies of God. Habakkuk looks to God and he says, How long, O oh Lord, until You fix these things? That cry of how long is really a, a cry from the heart. Um, a cry to God who alone can save. He doesn't simply rant about how bad society is getting. Um, and I know we, get, we, get, we tend to get drawn into that. Um, instead, he is drawn to God Himself. Fifteen times in the Psalms, The psalmist asks, how long? How long until you return? How long until all is made right? We find that same question in Isaiah and in Jeremiah. And in Revelation 6, and the martyrs in heaven cry out, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? And God may not answer right away. God may ask us to wait and allow evil to prosper, to point us to the evil that's inside of us. We see that throughout this book, Habakkuk will be changed by his conversation with God. He will be changed by viewing the evil outside and by God's uh, judgments on that evil. He will be swept into the changing work of God throughout this process. Uh, One of my favorite songwriters, uh, Andrew Peterson, sings of Watching a thunderstorm roll in. He says, I know you hear the cries of every soul tonight, and you see the teardrops as they roll tonight, down the faces of the saints who grow weary and faint in your fields, and the wicked roam the cities and the streets tonight. But when the God of love and thunder speaks tonight, I believe you will come. Your justice be done. How long? How long until this burden is lifted? How long is this the song that we sing? How long until the reckoning? And moving from kind of a a view of evil, I just want to say that I know we have all been through, uh, and many of you have been through even uh, some of the most difficult circumstances imaginable, and your heart has cried out to God and still cries out to Him, How long? And know that with Habakkuk and David and the martyrs under the altar, You are not alone. Cry out to God. Throw yourself on Him as you see the evil around you, as you see the the difficulties in your own life, because He is the only One who can bring resolution. And we hear the answer of the Lord to Habakkuk, God's solution. Um, First of all, He says, I am already at work. In every situation, God is already at work. Working. Habakkuk looks at the the rampant evil of his nation in despair, and God says, I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe, even if I told you about it. We move ahead centuries, and the disciples stand and watch as Jesus Christ is nailed to the cross. And if they could have heard it, God was shouting from the pages of their scriptures. I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe, even if I told you. Part of the reason that we're so hard pressed to believe what God is doing is this often God's work does not look like our ideal. It doesn't look like what we expect Him or what we want Him to look like. We look at how God is, is working in Habakkuk, and we could reread. These passages and, and find these descriptions of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. They're, they're bitter and hasty. Uh, you know, it's funny. These descriptions almost mimic the descriptions of, uh, that Habakkuk talks about in Jerusalem, what he sees in the culture around him. They're bitter and hasty. They're dreaded. They're fearsome. They're violent. They're purveyors of their own types of justice. And it's interesting as God answers, it seems like their capacity to attack Israel to attack Judah is not only allowed by God but is provided for by him and and in some way the fierceness of their wrath is a reflection of the fierceness of God's justice and judgment God's ways do not look like our ways if we look around and we see the evil in the world around us we'd like for it to just go away but in Habakkuk's case, God says, I'm raising up an even more evil culture to judge the evil that's in your culture. We see in Scripture, um, and and, uh, I'm I'm grateful to an old theologian, Edward Pusey, for this, that God always raises up those whose plans align with His providence. He raised up the Pharaoh in the Exodus. Uh, He raises up, people in our day who are evil to reorder things in his own way. Edward Pusey writes that the enemies of God lift themselves up for covetousness or pride, but there is a higher order of things in which God orders their actions to fulfill by their sinful deeds his righteous plans. When you look around and you see in the world around you that not only is the culture evil, but there are evil men and they seem to be abounding. They seem to to be getting their way. They seem to be doing all the things that they do without any sort of consequence. Know that God is ordering their actions. And in doing so, He will fulfill His righteous plans. He will provide a way out of it their their plans will not come to final fruition there is an end and look at how God worked as uh, again going back to that that idea of the disciples watching Jesus uh, be nailed to the cross he's tortured he's mocked and he's scourged eventually he dies and we could describe the Roman guards in the same way that that God describes the Babylonians and the boldness, you know, the, the, the idea of what we just went through is, is very similar. They're, they have evil plans, and God will use those evil plans for His glory. But there is a limit to the power of the wicked. It must have an end to make way for the righteous plans of our Lord. And just like the Romans nailed Jesus to a cross and stuck him in a tomb and put a guard, and three days later. He emerged from the grave and conquered death, conquered sin on our behalf. It was those nails and, and the scourging and the mocking that didn't look at all like what we wanted, what, like what the disciples wanted. But in the end, they effected salvation for us. God sent Jesus to fulfill that in our lives. The outcomes are there. The Babylonian siege and the captivity that followed uh, cured the Jewish people of idolatry. As much as they were uh, uh, persecuted, as much as many of them died in that, it caused them to pursue the Scriptures. Um, You know, you look at the response of the Jews who returned with Ezra. And he opened the Torah and he he read it out loud to them. And, And in doing so, it prepared the way in the Jewish nation for the Messiah. And the outcome of the murder of Christ, though the disciples couldn't see it in the moment, was our sanctification. Colossians 1 says, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And it might not look like our ideal, But can we begin to see with the eyes of faith in the middle of our difficulties today that God is doing a work in us that we can't begin to understand even if we were told all about it? Romans 8, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And often we stop there, but the next two verses remind us, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is God's work in you. Philippians 2 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You may not see the ideal situation happening in your life right now, but know that God has a plan. God is working in a way that you would not believe even if you were told all about it. And so we must have faith. And we'll see that as Habakkuk responds. Habakkuk had a a similar response to what you and I might have. He came to God with a problem and God promised to fix the problem by bringing about an even bigger problem. And uh, it's almost like Habakkuk, as as you read this, it's almost like he has the wind knocked out of him. It's like, (coughs) what, what are you talking about? Um, Even in his shock, though, he doesn't turn away from God. So we see that Habakkuk turns to the very one who is bringing judgment. And he does it in a very personal way. If you look at that in uh, verse 12 of chapter 1, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? It's interesting that throughout the Old Testament, God is referred to by the title, The Holy One of Israel. It's a very formal title. Uh, It reminds Israel of God's otherness. His set-apartness, His infinite perfection. And Habakkuk takes all of God's transcendence and brings Him close and makes Him imminent. He is embodying the words that are found in Hebrews 12. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Habakkuk sees the discipline of His people that is coming as a result of uh, the evil in their society. And he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? He claims this God as his own. This God who is judging his people. This God who is bringing justice into this situation. And even though it might not look like what he anticipated, he trusts God. He reminds himself, uh, of God's faithfulness, reassures himself of God's faithfulness. He says, we shall not die. This God, Habakkuk's God, has made a covenant with Abraham. He's made a covenant with Isaac and with Jacob. He restated it with Moses and with David. And Habakkuk doesn't just know about these promises, but he believes them and he reminds himself in this passage, we shall not die. I know what God has said. I know what He has promised. And I believe it. And I reassure my heart in those moments. He also reminds himself of God's sovereignty. He says, O Lord, You have ordained them as a judgment, and You, O Rock, have established them for reproof. He is vindicating the character of God and declaring confidence in Him, even though He is the one bringing about judgment. And that can be our consolation too in times of judgment the very nature and character of our Father is for us. He is eternal. He's unchangeable. He's holy. He cannot bear sin. But He is not vindictive. Habakkuk says, God has not sent the Chaldeans to destroy us. He sent them for judgment. He sent them to to change our hearts. And there's a a bit of a juxtaposition here. Habakkuk knows with his head and with his heart who God is, but he sees the punishment that's coming his way in the form of the Chaldeans uh, in this description that God has given him. And so he's anxious, I think, uh, to understand how God can be true to himself and sovereign in this situation and still allow the Chaldeans to prosper. It's a very valid question, and it's a question, and I I want us to feel free to go to God with our problems and with our concerns in a very similar way. That we can question God and and try to understand, seek to understand His will for our lives, even when we don't understand it. Um, Habakkuk is not ranting against God; he's not he's not throwing. Uh, his hands up and and shouting in God's face, why are you doing this? But he is going to God and seeking to understand what God is doing. And in doing so, he rests and waits. Uh, I want so badly uh, to learn the lesson that Habakkuk learned for myself, and that is to wait on God. Um, and, And I'm convinced that we're so quick to try and satisfy our own craving for answers and, and then ultimately our craving for control of the situation that when God doesn't answer as quickly as we think He should or, or He doesn't respond by doing things our way, that we tend to lash out or we tend to take matters into our own hands. We're so busy looking for the grace that we want that we miss the grace that we've already been given. Habakkuk's attitude is one of outward rest and earnest expectation for God's answer. And and, and make no mistake, this rest is uncomfortable. It's not easy. It requires for us, if we're going to rest in this same way, a willingness to sit in silence and not clutter our minds and hearts with distraction. Not clutter our our lives with the noise of our phones and our TVs and all the things we have going on. These are things that we have trained ourselves to use as pacifiers, as a way for us to, to calm our hearts, just like a baby. And instead, we must learn to rest in God. To rest in what He has for our lives. So Habakkuk rests and waits. And then God brings about uh, His judgment. The last part of chapter 2, most of, of chapter 2 of Habakkuk, uh, is God's judgment, not, uh, not just on His people, but more specifically on the Chaldeans who are evil and who are uh, wicked and vile and, and are doing all of these horrible things. First of all, we see that God's judgment is Public. Uh, he says, The Lord answered me, Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. God tells Habakkuk, Write down this vision so that a messenger can take it and run and tell everyone in advance of God's discipline, in advance of God's uh, uh, judgment on the nation. Tell everyone. You will be judged, but also I'm going to judge the people who I'm using to judge you. And God's judgment is an expression of His truthfulness. He always fulfills His promises. Uh, maybe you, like, like our family, have wrestled through the concept of, of God's judgment. And we've done that with our kids. You know, we've, we've, we've answered questions like, uh, how come God doesn't just save everyone? Uh, why does God have to punish sin? And, and even, you know, why did Jesus have to die? And, and we often, I think, when we're, when we're talking through that, we often come back to the reminder that if God does not fulfill His promise to judge sin, then He also cannot fulfill His promise to save. And He cannot be God. God's promises, both of justice and of sanctification, of salvation, cannot falter, cannot be broken. And God reminds Habakkuk of this truth in verse 3. You may think that he has lost control and you may think that his promises are slow in coming, but God does not lie. All of his promises will come to pass. And then God's judgment transforms man's evil plans into his eternal triumph. His judgment is always full and complete. And look at at how God turns uh, the, the the evil of the Chaldeans of the Babylonians back onto themselves. Let's just look briefly at the five woes that, that God proclaims over the Babylonians. Woe to him, and this is in verse, uh, verse 6, woe to him who accumulates what is not his by plundering. In verse 8, God turns it back on, him, on, on the Babylonian, and he says, because you've plundered many nations, the remnant of the nations will plunder you. We're starting to see a a pattern here. God does the same thing to the nation of Egypt when Israel leaves in the Exodus. And God judges the nation of Egypt with plagues that resemble the very gods that they worship. God is turning the evil of the the nations that He's using in judgment back onto them and saying, in the end, it's really me who gave you this power. Woe to Him uh, in in, uh, the second woe in verse 9. Woe to Him... Uh, who obtains his property by evil devices. Verse 11 says, even your own home will cry out against you. Even this home that you've built because of your wicked gains will turn on you. In verse 12, woe to him who builds his own kingdom on a foundation of evil and immorality. It's all worthless anyway. God ordained it. But in the end, everything you've worked for in this kingdom of, of evil will be swallowed up in the irrepressible kingdom of God. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Verse 15 says, Woe to him who shames his neighbors and subjects them to evil treatment, to horrific treatment. Verse 16, turns it back around and says, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. And then finally in verse 18, woe to him who creates idols to worship. In verse 20, you will worship the true God with the rest of creation. And it's interesting, on one hand, you have a man in all his frailty proclaiming the glories of a speechless image that He created. And then on the other hand, you have an almighty God proclaiming His own glory from His throne on high in the presence of speechless men. God says, the, the Lord is in His holy temple. Keep silent. Know who I am. There are evil men today that we could easily compare to the Babylonians. Um, And if you ever find yourself despairing, uh, that evil is prospering, come back to these verses and understand there's comfort. God will be eternally triumphant. There is an end to evil. And then finally, the path to life through God's judgment is faith. Um, We see this in verse 4 of chapter 2, the righteous shall live by his faith. This Hebrew idea of of faithfulness to God and faith in God kind of originates in Genesis 15.6 where it talks about God and Abraham. And and it says, Abraham believed God. It's that same word, believed God. And it was was counted to him as righteousness. So Habakkuk, I think, is, is referencing this to an audience of people who know who Abraham was very intimately. They know the Abrahamic story very well. And he's exhorting those people, children, descendants of Abraham, he's exhorting them to follow in their father Abraham's footsteps. What do we know about Abraham's faith? We know that it was not a momentary act, but a life of persevering and obedience. It's very difficult to constantly wait in faith for the fulfillment of the promise of God. Um, I know that, you know that. You've had to experience that. And it's so easy for that faith to be shaken. But Habakkuk says that in, in that steady, constant faith like Abraham, there is life. The righteous shall live by his faith. The path through the judgment of God, the path through trials in our own lives, the path through the difficulties that we see around us is an unshakable, a constant, a persevering faith in God's promises and in God Himself who will not allow His promises to fall by the wayside. So we follow the example of Habakkuk, and and it's easy for us to see the evil in the world around us and to look for God's justice and deliverance. Um, But just like Jesus didn't look like the Messiah the Jews wanted, God's justice in our time, God's justice in your life, may not coincide with your or my ideals. And in fact, when God's justice comes, we may find that God is using it broadly to not only judge those who are opposed to Him, but to draw His own children closer to Him. So how do we make it through these times? Just three brief thoughts as we close. When the day of justice comes, and even right now, how do we make it through God's judgment? First of all, in your own heart, vindicate the character and the glory of God. Know that He is always right and just. Secondly, keep a right relationship with Him by faith in Christ. There is a a faith that comes at the moment of salvation, but there is an ongoing faith in Jesus Christ that the promise of God to bring us to the end, to to ultimately glorify us, will come to pass. And, And the promise of God that we will one day rest in eternity with Him will come to pass. Keep that right relationship with Him through faith in Jesus Christ. And then, finally, rest in His providence. Don't run. Don't fight. Rest. And then rest in in His providence. Don't rely on your own strength or your own cunning or wiles to try and make it through this life and through God's working in the world around you rest in His providence. He is doing a work that you won't believe and you couldn't understand even if He told you. Evil must and shall have an end. And I just want to close by reading uh, a poem from Isaac Watts. Um, I've modified it just slightly so it's a little more understandable. He says, Lord, we adore Your vast designs, the obscure abyss of providence, too deep to sound with mortal lines, too dark to view with feeble sense. Now you array your awful face in angry frowns without a smile, but we through the cloud believe your grace, sure of your compassion still. Through seas and storms of deep distress we sail by faith and not by sight, Faith guides us in the wilderness through all the briars and the night. Dear Father, if Your lifted rod resolved to scourge us here below, still we must lean upon our God. Your arm shall bear us safely through. And Father, we are so grateful for Your arm of strength. We're so grateful that You promise that evil will have an end. And as we look at Habakkuk and we see how he responds to the evil in his day and then responds to your judgment, help us to learn to respond in the same way. As we seek justice, let us find rest in you. Let us find our strength and our hope in your promises that are never failing.